0: Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Thank you so much for this uh, kind introduction, Brother John, and thanks for the invitation to come here and speak to you. It's great to see you all here at Blackfriars. So uh, the main problem I'm going to address tonight is the question of how the beliefs that we hold on the basis of divine revelation can be epistemically justified. And St. Thomas Aquinas clearly thinks that they can be justified. In fact, he thinks that beliefs based on God's testimony are more certain than beliefs held on other grounds. In this talk, I will argue that Aquinas' view on this matter is defensible in the area of in the arena of modern analytic epistemology. Since Aquinas' view of faith is somewhat complex, however, a number of different interpretations of the epistemological principles behind it have emerged. After having discussed three common interpretations, I will suggest a fourth interpretation that in my view is preferable. In this interpretation, which I will call the testimonial interpretation, Aquinas' account of faith provides, according to my view, a convincing explanation of how Christian beliefs are justified. But before I can discuss this explanation and analyze various interpretations of Aquinas, I must do a couple of things there. So first, I need to say something about Aquinas' view of reason and knowledge in general. Second, I will give an overview of what Aquinas explicitly says about Christian faith and faith's assent to what God has revealed. After this, we are ready to investigate the epistemological principles behind Aquinas' view of Christian faith and discuss different interpretations. So, it's well known that uh, Aquinas distinguishes between two different kinds of truths about God. There are truths that we can know by natural reason, such as that God exists and is one. However, there are many truths about God that lie beyond what our reason can attain on its own steam, so to speak. For example, the proposition that God is triune. Truths such as this are only attainable through faith, that is, by believing God as he speaks in the Bible and through the church. There is a science, however, in Aquinas' Latin scientia, that takes the truths that God has revealed as its first principles. And from these first principles, it reasons to other truths about God and the world. This is the science of Christian theology, or as Aquinas calls it, Sacra Doctrina. Scientia is the Latin term for what Aristotle calls episteme in his posterior analytics, and Aquinas' account of science is heavily indebted to Aristotle, of course. For Aquinas, scientia refers to the position of knowledge arrived at by logical demonstration. He conceives of scientia as an intellectual virtue that is a cognitive habit that perfects the intellect. To have scientia of a certain proposition P is to hold P on the basis of a demonstrative syllogism. The hallmark of scientia is that it constitutes complete and certain cognition of the truth of the propositions that are demonstrated. Demonstrations, however, must of course start from premises. And if every premise itself needs to be demonstrated in order to be known, an infinite regress of demonstrations would follow and certain knowledge would be impossible to attain. The idea of scientia therefore presupposes that there are some propositions that are in no need of demonstration because they are known through themselves, in Latin, per se nota. Aquinas calls these propositions immediate premises, and he claims that they are quote, cognized by virtue of cognition of the premises' own terms. This is because in propositions of this sort the predicate belongs to the account of the subject, unquote. In other words, an immediate premise is a proposition in which something that is included in the definition of a thing, or something that necessarily follows from the definition, is predicated of that thing. Definitions are statements that capture the essences of things, and Aquinas, as a metaphysical realist, assumes that essences are real. Definitions therefore are not arbitrary constructions, but either manage to capture essences correctly or fail to do so. If one knows the correct definitions that pertain to a certain science's subject matter, then one knows the first principles of that science, and can deduce the rest of the science from them. As Aquinas says, the whole of scientia is virtually contained in its principles." But how then do we know the first principles of a scientia? To this question Aquinas, following Aristotle, gives two answers. In some cases, we know the first principles by means of an intellectual virtue that allows us to grasp, intuitively, given an appropriate amount of sensory experience and inquiry, the essences of things and formulate correct definitions on these basis. Aquinas calls the virtue that enables this intellectus, understanding, and he conceives of this virtue as distinct from the virtue of scientia. There is a good deal of debate about how to understand the cognitive apprehension of essences and exactly how it works, according to Aquinas. But Aquinas seems to hold that it does not happen by way of logical inference, but by some other more immediate epistemic process. Because we are bodily creatures, however, it is often the case that propositions about the effects and sensory properties of objects are better known to us than their essences and definitions. Such propositions, which we may call observation statements, can therefore constitute a kind of epistemic first principles for us, on the basis of which we can demonstrate further truths about the relevant objects. This kind of reasoning provides only an imperfect kind of scientia, which might, however, be necessary as a step towards the attainment of perfect scientia in any area. Aquinas' second answer to the question of how we can know first principles refers to Aristotle's concept of a subalternated science. Such a science receives its first principles from a higher science. For example, the first principle of optics includes certain principles demonstrated in the science of geometry. Opticians have to take those principles on faith, so to speak, from the field of geometry, since the relevant principles cannot be demonstrated within optics itself. Sacra doctrina, or Christian theology, is a subalternated science in something like this sense, which receives its first principles from the higher science of God's own knowledge. The necessity of receiving first principles by divine revelation in this way follows from the fact that humans cannot grasp the essence of God, who is the subject matter of this science. So the only way to know certain fundamental things about God is therefore by means of a cognitive habit other than intellectus and scientia, namely fides, or faith. Not even this habit, faith, enables us to know the essence of God, of course, but through faith, faith, we receive first principles that provides the basis for sacra doctrina, theology. So let us now see what Aquinas has to say about faith. Faith for Aquinas is one of the three theological virtues and as such a stable disposition or habitus given to humans by grace that perfects us and helps us attain our supernatural goal. All virtues are by their nature ordered towards certain acts. The primary act of faith, according to Aquinas, is to believe or to think with assent. However, faith also requires an external act, which is public confession. The acts of faith, like all acts, receive their identity from their object, what they are directed towards or are about. Aquinas makes a distinction between the material and the formal object of faith. The material object is God and all things insofar as they are related to God. However, we humans can only think about God and other things by grasping propositions about them. So when considered from the perspective of the believer, the material object of faith are propositions about God and other things in relation to God, and primarily those propositions that are found in the creed, the articles of faith. Secondarily, other biblical pros- propositions. The formal object of faith on the other hand is the aspect under which the rela- relevant propositions are to be believed, namely under the aspect of being divinely revealed. Aquinas describes the formal object of faith as, quote, nothing else than the first truth, prima veritas. For the faith of which we speak does not assent to anything except because it is revealed by God." Unquote. God reveals the propositions of faith by speaking to us through human intermediaries who have an instrumental role in the process of revelation. In Christ, however, God teaches us directly as the incarnate Word. Now, there is one thing that all the propositions held by faith have in common, and this is that their truth is not seen, visum, by the believer's intellect. What Aquinas means by this is that we do not have a logical demonstration of the truth of the Articles of the Creed from first principles that are immediately evident to us in some way. In other words, we do not apprehend the Articles of Faith either through the intellectual virtue of scientia, which, as we recall, is the habit of demonstrative knowledge, or by the virtue of intellectus, which is the habit whereby first principles are known. In this context it is important to note uh, one thing. Aquinas' denial that we have scientia or intellectus of the articles of faith does not entail that he denies the status of knowledge, to our belief in these articles. Although scientia is often translated as knowledge, there is in fact a big difference between scientia and the concept of knowledge as it is standardly used today. For example, I take myself to know that Australia exists and most modern philosophers would agree that I in fact know this, even though I have never been to Australia. However, this piece of knowledge uh, that I have would not qualify as scientia or intellectus for Aquinas, since I can neither demonstrate nor immediately intuit that Australia exists. So this is important to keep in mind. If we use a modern concept of knowledge, it seems fair to describe faith, as Aquinas conceives it, as a kind of knowledge. And I will come back to this issue later. Now, when we apprehend a proposition by scientia or intellectus, our intellect has no choice but to assent to it, to say yes to it and accept it. The intellect's assent is forced by the evidence, so to speak. In the act of faith, however, it is the will that moves or causes the intellect to assent to what God has revealed. The will's movement of the intellect, in turn, is caused by divine grace. As Aquinas writes, Quote, now the act of believing is an act of the intellect assenting to the divine truth, at the command of the will moved by the grace of God." Unquote. This means that faith is dependent on grace in two respects. First, because faith as an infused virtue is supernatural. And second, because every act of faith is due to the will being moved by grace. And this is why the act of faith is meritorious. The peculiar properties of faith led Aquinas to describe it as a mean between science and opinion, a mean or midpoint that shares properties with both extremes. Opinio is ordinary human belief based on inconclusive evidence for Aquinas. Faith is like opinion in that both are of something unseen, something non-evident to the intellect which means that both faith and opinion can only come about as a result of an act of the will. Faith is like scientia, on the other hand, in that it involves firm and unwavering assent to what is believed. Such firmness firmness does not characterize opinion, which always involves some degree of uncertainty or doubt. Although Aquinas, as we have seen, emphasizes the role of the will and grace for faith assent, He also emphasizes that faith is rational, and he does so in two ways. First, he points out that faith is based on God's own testimony, which makes it epistemically epistemically more certain than scientia. Aquinas writes, Much more is a man certain about what he hears from God, who cannot be deceived, than about what he sees with his own reason, which can be mistaken, unquote. Secondly, Aquinas emphasizes that there are good apologetic arguments for the claim that what we take to be divinely revealed is in fact divinely revealed. He writes, For divine wisdom himself, by suitable arguments, proves his presence and the truth of his doctrine and inspiration by performing works surpassing the capability of the whole of nature, namely the wondrous healing of the sick, the raising of the dead to life, a marvelous control of the heavenly bodies, and what excites yet more wonder the inspiration of human minds." Bringing together his appeal to divine authority and to both outer and inner signs of credibility, Aquinas writes, the believer has sufficient motive for believing. For he is moved by the the authority of divine teaching confirmed by miracles, and what is more, by the inward instinct of the divine invitation. Hence he does not believe lightly leviter. An interesting question that I will soon address is what role these different elements play for faith's rational status. One last thing that is important to mention in the present context is the role played by the gifts of the Holy Spirit in faith's ascent. There are seven gifts of the Spirit, and different gifts are appended to and assist different theological virtues, according to Aquinas. The two gifts that belong to the virtue of faith have, somewhat confusingly, the same names as the intellectual virtues I treated earlier, namely intellectus which is usually translated as understanding, and scientia, translated as knowledge. While virtues, both natural and theological, are principles for self-moved actions, the gifts are habits that make a person amenable to be moved directly by the Holy Spirit, a kind of movement that we need if we are to reach our eternal destination. The gifts of intellectus and scientia mediate the promptings of the Holy Spirit with respect to faith, so that our grasp of and assent to the articles of the creed become more perfect than our own reason, even when informed by the theological virtue of faith, is capable of ensuring. As Aquinas writes, in matters directed to the supernatural end to which man's reason moves him, according as it is in a manner and imperfectly informed by the theological virtues, the motion of reason does not suffice unless it receive in addition the prompting or motion of the Holy Spirit. Unquote. Okay, so after this overview of Aquinas's teaching on faith, it might be helpful to highlight four features of faith that are most relevant for, the present, for our present concerns. First, Aquinas holds that we accept the Articles of the Creed on, the, on account of the authority of God himself, which means that we believe those articles on the basis of divine testimony. Second, faith's assent is caused by the will, which acts in view of the divine goodness. Third, the will's assent is caused by divine grace, grace, which moves the will without compromising its freedom. Fourth, there are good apologetic arguments in favor of the claim that the articles of faith have been reviewed by God. Exactly how strong Aquinas takes these arguments to be, and what role they play for the justification of faith, is somewhat unclear, however. But before I address this question, and the question of how Aquinas conceives the justification of faith, I must say something about the concept of epistemic justification in general. I will use this concept in the widest possible sense, you might say. What justifies a belief is simply whatever gives it positive epistemic status, for example the status of knowledge. This means that I do not think of justification exclusively as a deontological concept. Neither do I distinguish, as some authors do, between justification and warrant. In my use, justification covers both these things. Furthermore, I use the concept with reference to both internalist and externalist theories of how beliefs acquire positive epistemic status. I will therefore speak about externalist as well as internalist theories of epistemic justification. Since the distinction between these types of theories is relevant in the present context, let me briefly say something about it. Roughly speaking, you can say that proponents of internalist theories hold that only factors that are within the subject's direct cognitive reach can justify justify beliefs items or factors that are somehow accessible to the the subject by reflection alone. Internalists therefore typically hold that being justified in believing a proposition P requires evidence, reasons, or grounds for P, where evidence, reasons, or grounds are understood to include only items that are accessible to the subject by reflection alone, such as perceptual experiences and other beliefs. Externalists, on the other hand, deny that what justifies a belief must be within the subject's direct cognitive reach. They allow that factors that are are external to the subject's perspective on the world, so to speak, can justify beliefs. Externalists can therefore hold that, for example, the fact that a certain process or method of belief formation is objectively reliable can confer justification on the beliefs that it produces. It does not matter if the subject does not know, or is in a position to know, that the relevant process is reliable. Okay, let us now look at three different ways of interpreting Aquinas. I will follow Father John Jenkins in referring to these ways as the naturalist interpretation, the voluntarist interpretation, and the supernatural externalist interpretation. And the last one represents Father Jenkins' own view. According to the naturalist interpretation, at least some persons assent to the articles of the creed because, first, they accept the cluster of arguments from natural theology, Second, they believe on the basis of human testimony and other evidence that miracles and other signs have occurred in biblical history and in the history of the church. From these considerations they infer that God has made a revelation in history which is contained in its essence in the creed. Since what God reveals cannot be false, belief in the creed is justified. This interpretation, suggested by philosophers of religion such as John Hick and Terence Penelham, focuses on the last of of the four features of Aquinas' view of faith that I enumerated above, namely Aquinas' claim that there are good arguments in favor of the faith. There are many problems with the naturalist interpretation, however. It is very unclear, for example, whether it is capable of accounting for the will's role in faith and the necessity of grace for the act of faith. It is also unclear how the interpretation can account for the faith of those who are ignorant of the apologetic case for God's existence and divine revelation. Perhaps the most serious problem, however, is that the naturalist interpretation cannot explain the epistemic certainty that Aquinas ascribes to faith. is the, If the epistemic basis for faith is argument from natural theology and the like, then it seems that faith should have no more certainty, certainty than is warranted by the human reasoning behind it. Aquinas, however, says that faith is more certain than all understanding and scientia. Unquote. And he also says that Quote, human reason is very deficient in things concerning God. Hence, as an interpretation of Aquinas, it seems that the naturalist model fails. The second interpretation is the voluntarist interpretation. This is defended in different versions by thinkers like James Ross and Eleanor Stump, and it emphasizes the second feature of Aquinas' teaching on faith that I mentioned earlier, the will's role in the ascent of faith. Proponents of the voluntarist interpretation claim that Aquinas was an epistemological reliabilist. Reliabilism is an externalist theory of justification according to which a belief is justified if it is produced by an objectively reliable cognitive faculty or process. A cognitive faculty or process, moreover, is reliable if, given a certain kind of input, it tends to produce true rather than false beliefs with sufficiently high frequency. Now, Aquinas' view, as we have seen, is that the will ascends to the articles of faith because it desires the goodness of God and eternal life. Aqu- Aquinas writes, We are moved to believe the words of God insofar as the reward of eternal life is promised to us if we have believed. And this reward moves the will to assent to what is said, even though the intellect is not moved by anything which has been understood." What proponents of the voluntarist interpretation claim is that this way of arriving at Christian beliefs that Aquinas seems to be referring to might be, or in fact is, a reliable belief-forming process, designed and intended by God to be conducive to true beliefs. If this is the case, and if reliabilism is true, as an epistemic theory, it follows that beliefs produced by the will-driven process that Aquinas seems to envision are justified. Now, different proponents of the Voluntary interpretation have different ways of explaining how and why the will-driven process of belief formation is reliable, and time does not allow me to address the details of any specific theory, so I will only point out what I take to be two general weaknesses. First, in this interpretation, the authority of God plays no role for the justification of faith assent, which seems to go against what Thomas holds. According to Aquinas, Faith quote, does not assent to anything except because it is revealed by God." Unquote. This suggests that belief in the Articles of Faith is justified by the fact that it is God who has revealed them, rather than by the fact, if it is a fact, that a certain will-driven process of belief formation is reliable. The second problem with the voluntarist interpretation, in my view, is that there seems to be something slightly fishy about the idea that the desire and an act of the will can bridge an epistemic gap, a gap in the evidence, so to speak. What a voluntarist interpretation suggests is that having a certain desire can justify a belief that one would otherwise not be justified in having. This could, of course, be acceptable under certain conditions, for example, if the subject has background knowledge to the effect that desires of the relevant type are truth-indicative. In that case, however, the justification for believing in accordance with the relevant desire would be an inference from background knowledge, which is not the kind of justification that proponents of the voluntarist interpretation have in mind. There is, of course, much more to be said about the voluntarist interpretation, and it cannot be dismissed quickly. Nevertheless, the problems I've pointed out indicate that it might be worthwhile to consider other ways of construing Aquinas. So let us therefore look at the third interpretation, the supernatural externalist interpretation. Jenkins' account uh, is complex, and here I will only focus on its general features. The interpretation builds on Aquinas' claim that the infused theological virtue of faith, together with the related gifts of the Holy Spirit, play a similar role in our ascent to the articles of the Creed as the natural intellectual virtue of intellectus plays for our knowledge of the first principles of human scientia. Aquinas writes, Faith can be called an argument insofar as the infused light, which is the habit of faith, makes manifest the articles of faith, just as the intellectual light makes manifest principles naturally known. Now, the supernatural light of faith does not make the truth of the articles of faith evident to the intellect. However, through this light and the gift of intellectus, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is supernatural, the believer immediately and non-discursively comes to understand that the articles of faith are divinely revealed and are to be believed, according to Jenkins' interpretation. In a second operation of the light of faith and the gift of scientia, the believer spontaneously assents to the articles as true. Since their truth, as I said, is not evident to the believer's intellect, his assent to them is voluntary and the act of faith therefore meritorious. So what is it then that justifies a person's belief in the articles of faith on this model? Well, Jenkins claims that Aquinas was an epistemological externalist who takes a belief to be justified if it is produced by a properly functioning cognitive faculty. More precisely, Jenkins holds that a person S is justified in believing that P, to a degree sufficient for knowledge of P, if he meets the following two conditions. First, that S's cognitive faculties were well designed by God to arrive at the truth with regard to the matter in question in the environment in which S finds himself, and secondly, that S's belief was formed and is held as a result of the proper operation of these faculties. Now, a person's belief in the Articles of Faith is, according to this account, the result of the supernatural light of faith rather than the natural operation of our cognitive faculties. However, the role that the light of faith plays in this respect is part of a divine design plan, and if a person's belief in the Articles is produced in accordance with that design plan, then the believer will be justified in believing the Articles of Faith. This theory, or this construal of Aquinas, is an externalist one, which means that it does not impose any requirement that the believer must know that his cognitive faculties actually work in accordance with the divine design plan. What is required by the theory is merely that this is actually the case. Now, I think that Jenkins's mod- model manages to do justice to many aspects of Aquinas' teaching on faith, and it represents, in my view, an improvement in relation to the preceding two interpretations. There is at least one problem with it, however. In order to see this problem, consider the following hypothetical scenario. Suppose that a person takes himself to have a good argument to the effect that the doctrine of the Trinity involves a contradiction, and therefore must be false. Now, if this person, through the supernatural light of faith, were to realize that the doctrine of the Trinity is divinely revealed, and were to assent to this doctrine, It does not seem to follow that he knows or is justified in believing the doctrine. The fact that his new belief that God is triune contradicts his old belief, that the trinity is a logically inconsistent notion, seems to undermine the new belief's status as knowledge. This is true even if the person's ascent to the trinity is produced by a properly functioning cognitive faculty that operates in accordance with the good design plan. A person does not know, or perhaps not even justifiably believe, a proposition that he takes himself to have good evidence against. (coughs) Now Jenkins could perhaps fix this problem by adding a further condition to his account. He could say that the necessary condition for having a justified Christian belief is that one does not take oneself to have other justified beliefs that contradict it. Such an addition, however, can seem to be ad hoc, or at least it does not flow naturally from Jenkins's overall epistemic framework, which is externalist. The added condition would also make the theory more complex than it already is. And it's likely, I would say, that further conditions would need to be added in response to other objections of a similar kind as the one I have here discussed. Because of this, and even though I think that Jenkins' theory deserves further consideration, I here want to suggest another interpretation of Aquinas's view of faith, which I call the Testimonial Interpretation. Now, this in- interpretation presupposes a philosophical view of testimonial knowledge called anti-reductionism. Testimonial knowledge is knowledge acquired from the words of other people, or, as the case may be, from the words of God mediated through human spokespersons such as the authors of scripture. Almost all philosophers agree that testimonial beliefs can be justified and constitute knowledge. But there are two main schools of thought concerning how this justification works, reductionism and anti-reductionism. Reductionists hold that testimonial beliefs are justified by reference to non-testimonial sources of justification. In other words, the justification that hearing a piece of testimony confers on a person is wholly reducible to other, more basic sources of justification, such as perception, memory and inference. In the words of Alvin Goldberg, A hearer is not epistemically justified in accepting another's testimony, unless she has inductive or a priori reasons, ultimately not themselves based on still further testimony, for regarding the testimony she confronts as credible." Anti-reductionists, the opposing school of thought, uh, has a less individualistic focus. Instead of saying that a person can only rationally believe a piece of testimony if he has evidence for the reliability of the witness, thinkers like Thomas Reed, Michael Dummett and John McDowell argue that testimony itself is a basic or sui generis source of epistemic justification. Some anti-reductionists understand this to mean that trust is always the default position. Instead of saying that a person can only rationally believe a testimony if he has evidence for its reliability, anti-reductionists of the defaultist stripe argue that an assertion is belief-worthy until shown otherwise. Unless Unless a listener has reason to suspect that a testifier might be deceptive or incompetent with respect to the subject matter he testifies about, the listener is rationally justified to believe what he hears. If the speaker is in fact knowledgeable and speaks the truth, what the listener acquires from his words counts as knowledge. Testimonial beliefs on this account have basically the same epistemic status as memory beliefs, beliefs formed on the basis of memory. Most people assume that I am justified in believing what my memory tells me, unless I have reason to suspect that I might remember wrong. And the same applies to testimonial beliefs according to defaultists. There are also other sorts of anti-reductionists besides defaultists. For example, philosophers who hold that a certain kind of interpersonal interpersonal relationship between speaker and hearers provides the hearer with a non-inferential reason to believe the speaker. Now, the main argument in favor of anti-reductionism, which is a school of thought that I myself sympathize with. The main argument for this school is the fact that the alternative view, reductionism, seems to have skeptical implications. If we can only acquire knowledge from testimony in cases where we have good evidence for the trustworthiness of the testifier, then it is rather doubtful that we have very much testimonial knowledge at all. For example, I did not know who the author of my physics textbook in high school was, but much of my knowledge of physics comes from this book. If rationality requires of me that I have positive evidence for the author's trustworthiness with respect to physics in order to acquire knowledge from what he has written, then it seems to follow that I do not know the things about physics that I learned in high school. As many philosophers now acknowledge, it seems difficult or even impossible to account for the justification of many of our seemingly impeccable testimonial beliefs by reference only to non-testimonial evidence, such as our own individual perceptions, memories, and the inferences we can draw from them. Against the background of this fact, many philosophers have gravitated towards anti-reductionism, and it is this general paradigm that I will assume in the present context. And in my view, the best anti-reductionist account of testimonial knowledge has been suggested by the philosopher John MacDowell. MacDowell holds that testimony, like perception and memory, can constitute a cognitive link between a person and an objective fact, so that knowledge of this fact becomes available to the person. Of course, in some cases people testify falsely, and in these bad cases knowledge only appears to be available. We cannot always know by our own autonomous powers when we are in a bad case, since a bad case can be indistinguishable for the subject from a good case in which veridical testimony really makes knowledge available. However, when we in fact are in a good case, we are, according to MacDowell, rationally entitled to believe the testimony in question, and we can therefore acquire the knowledge that it makes available. In order to acquire this knowledge, we do not need positive evidence for the trustworthiness of the speaker. However, Since acquiring knowledge from testimony is an exercise of reason, we need to evaluate the testimony of other people in light of our background knowledge, and be on the lookout for signs of deception or incompetence. We must, in other words, be aware of the risks we expose ourselves to when we trust others. And we must be rationally sensitive to information and considerations that speak against the truth or reliability of people's testimony. McDowell refers to this kind of sensitivity and vigilance as toxastic responsibility, and he holds that exercising such responsibility is a necessary condition for acquiring knowledge from the testimony of others. A person who blindly believes everything he hears fails to acquire knowledge from testimony because he fails to respect the norms of rationality that are intrinsic to the pursuit of knowledge. However, if a person respects those norms and believes a piece of testimony that is actually reliable, what he acquires is knowledge. Now, going back to Aquinas, it's not entirely clear what view of testimony he held. According to Matthew Siebert, who has studied this extensively, Aquinas' overall view is pluralist which means that he combines reductionist and anti-reductionist stances to testimonial justification in different areas. When it comes to divine testimony, however, Aquinas clearly seems to take an anti-reductionist stance. He seems to hold that the mere fact that God says something constitutes a sufficient justification for believing it irrespective of whether the hearer has sufficient evidence that the speaker indeed is God and hence reliable. This is shown by Aquinas' denial that Christian faith is based on, quote, some human reason and natural sign. Aquinas holds that Christian faith exists, quote, only when one believes, for this reason, that it is said by God, which is designated by calling it credere deo, And this specifies faith the way any cognoscitive habit has its species from the reason by which it ascends to anything. Suppose now that God supernaturally, by means of the light of faith, makes a person inclined to believe that it is God who has communicated the Christian message to us. God can make a person inclined to believe this by making it seem very plausible to the the person that this is the case, and by making him want to believe that God has revealed the Christian message. In order to make the fact of divine revelation seem plausible and attractive to a person, God may have to make certain other beliefs that the person has seem less plausible to him than before, And good God could do this in a gradual way, by drawing the person's attention to certain facts or circumstances or arguments, by enlightening the person about certain misconceptions, reasoning mistakes, etc., and by affecting the emotional coloring of various conceptions and beliefs. As we know, the process of coming to faith is usually not instantaneous but often takes the form of a gradual change of perspective on the world a change that also involves the will and the person's motivations. Now, when this gradual process has reached a certain point, it will, according to the present hypothesis, seem plausible to the person that Christian beliefs are revealed by God, and the person can then, in cooperation with grace, assent to Christian beliefs as being divine testimony. This assent will be voluntary since it is not forced by the evidence. The assent will be doxastically responsible if it indeed seems plausible to the believer that Christian beliefs are revealed by God, and if the fact that it seems plausible to her is not due to any neglect of epistemic duties or clouding of judgment on the part of the believer, which need not be the case if Christianity is in fact true. What justifies, the believer's assent to the, what justifies the believer's assent to the Christian message, however, is not the fact that it seems plausible to him. Instead, it is the fact that the assent is based on divine testimony. As McDowell argues, testimony that is in fact trustworthy makes knowledge av- available, even if the person who receives the testimony does not have evidence for the testifier's identity or trustworthiness, at least not sufficient evidence for knowledge. Of course, this theory of the justification of Christian beliefs would need to be further elaborated in various respects. But I suggest that it can be defended as a reasonable epistemological model. I also think that it does justice to the various elements of Aquinas' teaching on faith, and especially the four features I enumerated earlier. So my model portrays Christian beliefs as based on and justified directly by divine testimony, which was the first feature. The model portrays the ascent of faith as voluntary and due to the influence of grace. These were the second and third features. And finally, the fourth feature, the existence of good apologetic arguments for a fact of revelation, fits very well with the model, I think due to the requirement of doxastic responsibility that it imposes on justified testimonial beliefs. If there is a strong apologetic case to be made for Christianity in light of public evidence, then it will be possible for God to make the fact of divine revelation seem plausible to any person, without deceiving her or clouding her judgment or something of that sort. Furthermore, a nice thing with the concept of doxastic responsibility is that it is relative to a particular person's epistemic position. What doxastic responsibility requires depends, in other words, on how knowledgeable a particular person is and what knowledge it actually he or she actually has. It is therefore not the case that every person needs to have sophisticated knowledge of the apologetic arguments in order to be able to believe in God in a way that respects the norms of doxastic responsibility. It is sufficient if a person believes responsibly in relation to his or her own horizon of knowledge and understanding. So this is the model, and I think I will stop there and uh, open up for questions and discussion. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at wwwthomisticinstituteorg slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith